We are in a study of the book of 1 Corinthians. That's where we're going to spend our time this year. That's kind of how we like to do things here at Bayou Church is just grab a book of the Bible and go verse by verse through it, studying it. Um, and so we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 18 through chapter 2, verse 5. And, um, you know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to this church in Corinth that he planted. And he's writing probably from Ephesus, so he's in Ephesus, writing to the church at Corinth because he has heard that there's some divisions in the church, there's some problems going on. And the, the church at Corinth is a church Paul planted in Acts chapter 18. He planted this church, he stayed there for about 18 months, and then he moved on, and they're a new pastor now at the church. But we have to understand is that there are no... Um, old Christians in the early church. I mean, do you ever think about that? Like, whenever he planted this church and now he moves on, all the Christians in Corinth, everyone in the church is like a year and a half old in Christ. And so they naturally are not super mature in the Lord, and so they wander, and Corinth, the city, is like modern-day New York or L.A. or something like that. It's a, it's a big uh, city of commerce and culture, and uh, influence, and also, as big cities are known for, it's also known for its sin and uh, sexual immorality and all types of uh, depravity going on in the city, and that's creeped in to the church and caused many divisions. And so, as we'll see as we're studying this book, they are divided over a lot of things. And so, um, so Paul writes to them and says, look... Um, I love you, and I'm, I'm excited for what God's doing in you, but we need to correct some things, and uh, today we're going to talk about uh, the power of the gospel. So let's uh, just read the passage today, and then we will uh, pray and uh, study it together. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, are we here together? Are we ready? All right, here, uh, here we go. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made, the foolish, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and trembling, and my speech and my message were not of plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together, church. Father in heaven, I thank you for gathering us together as your saints. I thank you for preserving your word for us, God. And I thank you, Lord, um, that there is power in the cross of Christ and uh, that you have made us alive in Christ through this glorious gospel. I pray that today you would um, teach us from your word, by your spirit, God. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand uh, your word. I pray that you'd guide my speech, that it would be true and pleasing in your sight, that you would help us to um, uh, focus in and give full attention to your word and uh, use it for our good and your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, here's the thing. If you've ever uh, read the Bible, what you come to discover is that we as Christians believe uh, some weird things. Uh, in the Bible, what you'll find is that there's a snake that taught and a, a woman was turned into a pillar of salt, that a sea was split in two with a staff and a donkey talked. You know, read that story. It's in there. An axe head, an iron axe head floated. A virgin gave birth. Water was turned into wine. Seas were stilled by a guy who was in a boat in the midst of the sea and the storm. Men walked on water and people would rise from the dead. It's a little wild. And I think that maybe not many of you have experienced any of those things. And so it can seem a little weird. And people, unbelieving people, people, outsiders, they think that you're maybe a little naive for believing such things. And we don't like that. We as people, we don't want to be seen as crazy or irrational, do we? Now... We have well-grounded arguments for why we believe that the Bible is true and why we can trust it as reliable, but we have to admit that some of these things sound a, a little silly. I was just talking last Wednesday, we, um, we had kind of a Q&A, and someone asked a question about something early on in Genesis, and part of my answer was just, you know what, I have accepted that there are some really strange things that happened in the first couple chapters of Genesis. And, uh, and so I'm okay with believing that because I've accepted these things are a little, a little weird, a little odd, but I believe it to be true. Now, we usually respond as Christians, we respond to this reality in one of three ways. The first way that you might respond is that we keep our mouths shut about it. 
I don't want people to know I believe this stuff, and so I'm just not going to talk about it, and I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. The other way that we can respond to this reality is that, that I accept it, but I, I kind of try to want to tweak it a little bit to make it more palatable to, uh, to my friends who don't yet believe it. And so if I just, you know, get rid of this and I tweak it and I don't talk about that thing, like I believe in Jesus, but all that other stuff, I don't know. Our third option is to accept it fully without apology and believe every word of it, and then you're going to look foolish. Now, in this passage that we're in today, basically Paul's argument is to pick, to pick the third option. All of us. To pick the third option. Essentially, he's saying everyone is going to think you're crazy for believing this, but the message you have is the power of God. So don't shrink back from it. Own it because God likes to take the weak things of the world and shame everybody else by proving through his wisdom that the wisdom of the world is actually foolishness. So what we're going to see is kind of three things, and this passage breaks into kind of three nice parts, um, where the first one we see the power of the cross is verses 18 through 25, the power of the cross. Let's go back to verse 18. He says, now the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word, this is the logos, the message of the cross. What is the message of the cross? Well, uh, crucifixion um, in this day was you were convicted of a crime to be executed via crucifixion. A lot of times this was reserved for the worst of worst criminals. And so then you would be beaten with the cat of nine tails. You'd be strapped up, your back exposed. You'd be beaten 39 times. It was 40 minus one because 40 would kill you. 39, maybe not. And so they'd be leather straps with bone and metal. It would grab a hold of your back and pull out chunks of flesh. A lot of people did not survive this, but it weakened you uh, for crucifixion. After this, they would then uh, give you your cross. A lot of times they'd put a sign around your neck that was the crime that you were uh, convicted of, and you would then be paraded through the city on the way to the hill so that uh, all would see and be that you would experience humiliation and shame as everybody sees and everybody knows this is what we do to people who try uh, to go against Rome. Well, after you walk through the city carrying your cross, you would then be, um, sometimes they would just tie you to the cross But oftentimes they would nail you to the cross through your wrists, most likely. I know sometimes we think the the palm of the hand, but that probably would not support the weight of a person. It's more likely right through the wrist bone, right through the wrist joint there. And they would nail you to the cross. That's how they did it for Jesus. And the way you were strapped up is that um, you were put in such a position that it was hard to breathe. And so every time you wanted to breathe, you had to pull up a little bit on your arms so you could take a little breath. And it was just an excruciating way to die. But then they would nail you to the cross many times naked, adding to the shame 
and humility, and they'd put you in a place where everybody's walking past you. Many would spit on you and yell at you as you were hanging on the cross. This is, um, this is what it was like. It was slow and painful. You'd, you'd die of asphyxiation most of the time or loss of blood. It was humiliating, undignified, an excruciating way to die. We get our word excruciating from crucifixion. And so he says, look, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. What the, word, the word of the cross, or as he says in verse 23, that uh, we preached Christ crucified. So this message of Christ crucified is folly. And one of the reasons why it's folly, because Christ or Messiah meant power and splendor and triumph. But cross meant weakness and defeat and humiliation. So Christ and crucifixion were an oxymoron of sorts. Why would you ever put those two things together? Because if you're the hero, if you think about the hero of the story, you don't die. When you watch a good movie, the hero comes in and he saves everybody and they walk into the sunset and and he won and he lived. If you're the hero, you don't die, especially... Not on a cross. See, because we use crosses today as, as jewelry, and you wear a cross necklace or a cross bracelet, and we put it in our homes. We use it as art. I mean, we have a cross here. Today, the cross um, symbolizes Christianity, and so we put it all over the place to remember the sacrifice of our Savior. But back then, they would have never done that. It was The cross was... was Shameful to them. It was like wearing a necklace with a little electric chair on it. Or, or, or wearing a little noose necklace. Or an atomic bomb necklace. It was like that doesn't, that's not beautiful, it's not, it's shameful. It pictured suffering. If you had a loved one who was condemned to be executed, then you would go and petition on their behalf to to execute them in any other way than crucifixion. Because it was undignified and dishonorable. Do it any other way. If you're a Roman citizen, by being a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified. It was too shameful for any Roman citizen. That's why Paul was not crucified, because he could prove his Roman citizenship. That's why he was beheaded because beheading is quick and merciful for a Roman citizen. The cross doesn't make sense to an unbelieving world. Why in the world? Like if you're, if this, what? Your God, your hero, dying doesn't make sense, especially on the shameful cross. This is a bad story, they would say. But to us, it is, as he says here, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God chose what was naturally foolish by means, by the means that which he saves sinners. And if you believe the gospel, it changes your life and your eternity because it has 
power. It has the power to change your eternal destiny. But notice he says, for those who are perishing, it's folly. But to those who are being saved, it is the power. These are both kind of progressing verbs. You're progressing in one direction or another. You're either progressing in Christ's likeness towards eternal life or you're progressing in depravity towards eternal death. There's really no neutral. You're headed to one of two directions. Are you being saved or are you perishing? Verse 19, he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. It is written, this is Isaiah 29, 14, is what he is quoting here. Verse 20 says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Have, has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? He said, where is the wise, the scribe, the debater? So wise people, he's like, let's, let's address the wise people. And then he gives two categories for wise people, one Jewish, one Gentile to cover all the bases. And so he talks about these scribes. Now, scribes would have been like the lawyers of the day. They were the ones who were well-versed in uh, the Old Testament. They would know the law, every detail of the law. They were highly educated. The scribes, the wise people in the Jewish world. Then the debater, he would be like the politician of our day, intelligent and articulate Greeks who thought they could solve anything with reason and debate. And so he says, okay, in all groups of people, either in the world, you're either Jew or, or Gentile, Jew or Greek, he'd use those words synonymously. So it's like every category of wise people, has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? How has God made them foolish, you might say? I think what he's pointing out is can your education or intelligence or reasonable debate save you or give you eternal life? No. Your learning, your reason, your knowledge of the Bible, your theology cannot save you. What seems to be wise in the world is foolishness for the state of your soul. Verse 21, he says, For the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. For in the wisdom of God. So he talks a lot about wisdom. Wisdom in the Greek is this word Sophia. And uh, it's used over nine times in these verses that we're studying alone. And he's contrasting God's wisdom with the world's wisdom. See, biblically, God's wisdom uh, would be uh, described as skillful living that align with the things of God. So wisdom is the proficient application of biblical principles to one's life resulting from a Godward heart orientation. God's wisdom is not man's wisdom multiplied to the highest degree. It's wisdom of a different order altogether. And so God's wisdom was seeking to apply God's word to daily living. Now the world's wisdom, their Sophia 
is a little different. It's more like just a love for knowledge. When they thought of wisdom, they were primarily concerned with gaining intellectual knowledge that could be leveraged for the purpose of obtaining influence and power. Wisdom then was viewed as a tool for achieving self-gain. And so they loved, if I get, uh, knowledge is power, right? And so if I get more knowledge, I gain more power. And so they loved, loved, and they developed a whole discipline of, um, you know, just think about it. You have uh, philos, love, Sophia, wisdom, philosophy, is the study of the love of wisdom. It's the study, I'm studying wisdom. I'm thinking about wisdom, and that's what they loved to do. The world did not know God through wisdom, he says, though. The world did not know God through wisdom. What he's saying here is that it's not the smartest people who are saved. You don't attain salvation by gaining some secret knowledge that no one else has by being smarter or more educated than everyone else. That's not how you are saved. You can't achieve salvation through effort, intellectually or otherwise. Paul isn't condemning here, though, all learning or education. He's not saying you shouldn't grow in your learning. He's not saying you shouldn't pursue an education. He merely says that by themselves they are useless for attaining spiritual wisdom. That it is not the means by which you are saved, by which you gain God's wisdom. I read this uh, account of this little story. It says one day students in Albert Einstein's classes were saying that they had decided that there was no God. They decided, okay, look, we've gotten together, we've all decided there is no God. Einstein asked them how much of the knowledge of the world they had amongst themselves collectively as a class. All you guys together, put all your heads together. How much of the knowledge of the world do you have collectively? The students discussed it for a while and decided that they had 5% of all human knowledge amongst themselves. Einstein thought that estimate was a little generous. But he replied, is it possible that God exists in the 95% that you don't know? You've just concluded God doesn't exist, but then you've also told me that you only know 5% of what there is to know. And so is it possible that God could possibly exist in the 95% that you don't know anything about? I think what he's getting at is human wisdom doesn't lead to knowledge of God or God's wisdom. Back to verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who uh, believe. So he saves us through simply believing the gospel, the folly of what they preach. Now he says folly, that the gospel message... The message of Christ on the cross, dying in our place for our sin, rising from the dead to offer us life, defeating death in the grave. That the gospel of Jesus Christ, that all who believe on him can have this eternal life, 
The gospel message is foolishness. But we try to make the gospel anything but foolish, don't we? We, we want it to appeal to the masses, and so we edit off all the little hard bits. Let me just, let me just revise this a little bit. Let me edit it a, 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 just, a, just a scotch. A lot of times we do this out of a, a sincere desire for our friends to come to faith in Christ. We want our unbelieving friends to believe, but we know they're not going to believe this stuff because it's foolishness to them. And so let me just, you know, make it a little more palatable, make it a little more appealing, a little more attractive. Let me leave out the, the hard stuff about like sin and hell and wrath and and repentance. I'm not going to talk about, I'm just going to talk about how God loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. Just, I don't know, give God a little nod. Say a little prayer and you will have your ticket to heaven. It's like, no, no, no. I just want them to believe. But when you have something, after you've done all this revision, you have something that you call the gospel but it is robbed of all its power to save. It is like ripping the engine out of a race car or ripping the heart out of a human. You have, you have a shell of what was, but it has no power any longer. What he's saying here is that we should just present the whole gospel clearly and boldly. Clarity is the goal. And watch God's power at work. Look at verse 22. He says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Jews demand a sign. This is, uh, we see this evidenced in Jesus' ministry. Uh, the Jewish people, the Pharisees, they would keep challenging Jesus and asking him for a sign. We see this in Matthew 12, 38 through 39. It says, Then some of the scribes, he already mentioned scribes, right? Some of the scribes and Pharisees, answered him saying, Teacher, they're speaking to Jesus now, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Dance for us, Jesus. Show us a sign. But he answered to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Be careful when you're seeking signs because he's like, no sign will be given except for the prophet Jonah. And the sign of the prophet Jonah is the sign of somebody being buried for three days and then rising again to proclaim the gospel to a sinful people who all get saved. And so he's like, yeah, they're going to seek a sign, but here's the sign that the Jews mostly wanted, because Jesus did a bunch of miracles in, in front of them, and they didn't accept them. They still didn't receive him as Messiah. You know what the sign they wanted? The sign that they wanted was uh, the sign similar to uh, the first exodus. They wanted a sign of deliverance from political oppression. They were expecting somebody, their Messiah was going to come and free them from their Roman oppression. And so their sign was 
another exodus. You come in and you do great and mighty miracles that ultimately deliver us from this political oppression. And that's not the sign he was going to give. He says, but then the Greeks seek wisdom. So you have one person who's like, I'll believe God when he does something miraculous. Why doesn't God, if he wants me to believe, why doesn't he just show up in the sky and say, hey, I'm God. I'm real. Believe in me. If he did that, I would believe. No, you wouldn't. You would think you were hallucinating. So there's one who seeks a sign, but there's another who's like, Greeks seek wisdom. Convince me. Satisfy all of my questions. Make it make sense. Give me a better argument. Rebut all my objections. And it's not that there aren't satisfying answers to questions we have about the Bible or about the world or about God. But there is a a type of person who refuses to be satisfied. They keep asking questions because they don't want satisfying answers. Because then they would have to act on it. So he says, you know, Jews seek a sign, Greeks seek wisdom, verse 24. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. He says, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. So he's like, yeah, they want, a, they want a sign, they want miracles, they want answers, and we preach Christ crucified. We preach, that's what we give them. Well, now the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. Stumbling block is uh, Greek scandalon. It's where we get our word scandal. And the reason it was a scandal is primarily because what Deuteronomy says about hanging on a tree. In Deuteronomy 21... 22 through 23, he says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, he is to be put to death, and you are to hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain on a tree all night, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. So a person who hangs on a tree, is cursed by God, so they could never accept the fact that the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, would ever hang on a cross because that means he was a cursed man. Well, he was a cursed man. He, on the cross, he was cursed so that we could be blessed. On the cross, he took on our sins so that we could have righteousness. On the cross, he died so that we could have life. So yes, we understand. It's it's the wisdom of God for us. It's the power of God for us. We understand the beauty of the cross. But for them, it was a scandal. There's no way this is how it could be. It's, folly, it's, it's, it's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's folly to the Gentiles. It just, this doesn't make sense. How could your hero be crucified? doesn't make sense to us. But to those who are called, what does he say here? 
verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. But to those who are called, not everyone is called, but he says God calls all types of people, both Jews and Greeks. He's calling all types of people to himself, and he says it's the power of God. It has given me life. It has changed my life. And the wisdom of God. Now, not through the pursuit necessarily of greater knowledge, but now through the power of the gospel, he has opened my eyes. He's given me spiritual eyes so now I can see things that I couldn't see before. And now I can know God like I could never know him before through the, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I can rightly know how to live appropriately in this world that God created and designed it to work. Verse 25, he says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God on his worst day is better than you on your best day. And God, I think sometimes we have the, we see God as like this old bearded man in the sky, and we think that he's maybe just like a smarter version of ourselves, but he's not just a smarter version of us. He's in a category all of his own, above and beyond all wisdom. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so you're like, I, unless God answers all my questions and helps me figure it out, he couldn't fit his knowledge into your little pea brain. He couldn't make it happen because he's on a whole nother level. And there's some things that we just can't understand and we receive them by faith. And so what he says here is that our message is foolishness. And don't try to make it not foolishness. Embrace it and believe it because it is the power of God to salvation. All right, second point is the people of the cross. So we saw the message, and now we're seeing the people of the cross. Verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Consider your calling, Brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you uh, were of noble birth. Consider your calling. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And so he's like, all right, so this message seems like foolishness, but here's the thing. Um, but also, you're kind of foolish. God chooses... What the world sees is outcasts. He chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And I mean, consider the uh, disciples. Jesus doesn't go to the seminaries of his day and pick the best students of the Bible to be his followers. He goes to the shore and picks the fishermen. So he grabs a fisherman and then he grabs his tax collector He's grabbing these, these people. He's getting people from Galilee. And we don't think much about Galilee, but Galilee, they were rednecks. And so he's grabbing the rednecks and the fishermen and the uneducated and untrained. And he's got this ragtag group of guys. Nobody would choose these guys. 
But Jesus chose these guys. And everybody recognized that these guys were unqualified. In Acts chapter 4, the early church, verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, as these religious people are seeing them and, and them preach the gospel and be used by God, it says they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. As I consider, he chooses people no one else would choose. He chooses the foolish people. Verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that were not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why did God choose uh, to do it this way? Verse 29 gives us the answer. So that, here's the reason, no human being might boast in the presence of God. So the reason he chooses, because he wants no one to be able to say, God chose me because I'm awesome. See, if God chose the smartest, most talented people, we would all go, yeah, of course. Of course. Of course he would choose them. I would choose them. Absolutely. We would also be tempted to say that the ministry, that whatever ministry they're a part of, their ministry is successful because it's full of talented people. Of course their ministry is successful. They're all the, they've got the team of the most gifted people in the world. And we're boasting in people. Look how awesome they are. Look how great they are. And then... The people that are being used, if you're being used by God, you, you tend to think that I'm successful because I'm awesome, because I've worked hard, because I've studied hard, because I've put it, like, the reason I'm successful is because I'm great. And I'm better than a lot of my other peers. And that's why God is blessing what I'm doing, because I'm great. But something incredible happens when God chooses unqualified people and blesses what they do, then we must say, it is all God. Then we must boast in the Lord. I got a text this morning from a friend of mine who um, used to come to church here when I just started preaching. And uh, text me this morning, I, there was a message I gave, like my first sermon ever in front of people. There was a message I gave called Have To or Get To. And I gave out these little cards, these little business-sized cards for people to just take home and remember. Put them on your mirror, put them in your visor, put them on your fridge to remember the message Have To or Get To. I don't have time to review the whole message, but he texted me this morning with a picture of that card. And he said, I still have this card, and every time I see it, I still think of the message that you gave, that we get to serve the Lord, that it's not an obligation. We don't have to. We get to do this. And he said, I just, I just want to encourage you and thank you for that. And I, I responded and said, man, it's amazing how God will use the foolish things of the world, this little, young, ignorant preacher, 
first sermon ever preached just about. How God uses the foolish things to shame the wise. That it's glory to God. I can't boast in that. I knew nothing. If God used that to bless people or to encourage people or to strengthen people, that was all God. And so whenever God uses foolish people, foolish things, we can point and say, man, God is awesome. That we are Christians not because we are the smartest or the most capable. We're Christians because we're weak and needy. If you were in school and you were taking part of, you know, playing baseball at recess, I don't know, I was homeschooled, so I'm making stuff up when I talk about your schooling experience. But say you were, but I had a lot of siblings, so we could form a whole baseball team if we wanted to. But say you're, you're, you're choosing teams. You're the captain, you get to choose your team, and you choose, who do you choose? You choose the fastest and the strongest and the best hitter and the best catcher, and you choose the best people to be on your team, but that's not how God chooses. God looks at everybody, and he says, I'm going to choose the guy with the big glasses. You come over here, dude. I'm going to choose the guy with the headgear. You come, and the lanky guy, I want you, the one with a limp, you come, join my team. And then what happens is because God's on the team, he whoops the other team. Just hitting a home run every time. And so when God's team wins, this group of outcasts doesn't say, man, we're great, we're awesome, we're amazing. No, they say, look, we won because we're on God's team. And that's what he's saying that God chooses the foolish things so no one can say it's because humans were awesome, but because God is awesome and he does powerful things with weak people. But he's like, even more so than boasting in how God has used you powerfully, we should boast that God has saved you powerfully. Look at verse 30. He says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Is what happens when you're saved. You're in Christ now. Who became to us wisdom from God. So you get the wisdom whenever you don't pursue it. You get wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. He's talking about your salvation. That when you are in Christ, you are made righteous, made right with God, justified. That you are sanctified, you're set apart. We talked about this previously in sermons, but you're set apart, becoming more like Christ, set apart from the world. Redemption is more of a slavery term. It's the idea of being set free. So you're made right with God, you're set apart as a special people, and then you are set free from all the things that were binding you. Luke 10, verse 20, describes a time where Jesus sent out his disciples, all these un unqualified, foolish people. He sent them out with power to go and heal the sick and cast out demons. And they came back and they were like, Jesus, this is awesome. They, the demons obey us. Sickness flees in our pride. It's amazing, Jesus. They were, they were rejoicing. They were boasting in how God has used them. But then Jesus kind of gives this little correction, and he says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. The spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
So yes, he says God does amazing things with weak people, but that's not how we should, re- we should rejoice, that he saves weak people, unimpressive people. And so that's why he ends in verse 31, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The one who boasts, boasts in, he's, he's quoting Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. But he's saying, all we can do is give glory to God. If I ever get the sense in me that it's something I did, I need to immediately turn that back to God. I'm boasting in the Lord. So how does this apply to us? Don't judge people based on achievement. Give God all the glory. See, sometimes the systems of the world begin to creep into the church and we begin to esteem those who have achieved a lot and then we look down on those who have achieved not quite as much and it ought not be so in God's family. We elevate people based on their achievements, the school they went to, the degree they earned, the business they started, the experiences they've had. We elevate people based on what they've achieved. That's worldly thinking. Paul says that the cross of Christ levels the playing field, that those who have achieved and those who haven't are equal in Christ. And we shouldn't judge people favorably based on what they've achieved in the world, and we shouldn't look down our noses at anyone. We show grace because we know grace. He's not saying that you can't admire someone or respect someone for the hard work that they've put in in life. But in the family of God, we don't, we don't promote people or demote people. We look at all as equal at the foot of the cross because we have to remember that I'm one of the foolish ones that God chose not think so highly of yourself that I must become less and less so that he can become more and more. Also, I think what this says to us is that if you feel unqualified, you're in good company. We are all unqualified. So so join the team. I had one person uh, make a... a they, They chose not to be a part of really any church family because they said there's no man who is qualified to speak on behalf of God to people as a preacher would do. There's no man that is qualified to do that, and so I just don't go listen to any man. I only, you know, I'm like one of those me by myself with my Bible type of people. The problem with that is that I would agree. No man is qualified. I'm not up here because I'm like, I'm more qualified than everybody else. But God chooses to use the unqualified and the weak to shame the strong. Like God chose to use it this way. God's the one who says, I'm going to choose elders and pastors and call them to preach the word to the people. A lot of people would stay out of the game because they don't feel useful. I don't know where I could be used. I don't know where I could... You see, you see yourself as so little that you just don't engage. 
but God can use you. That's why he chose you. That's why I, I, God does big things with little people, and all he needs you to do is be willing. Here I am, Lord. Send me. I volunteer not because I think I'm great. I volunteer because I think you're great. And you can do great things with little people. Here I am. Send me. Final point today is this, the proclamation of the cross. So we have this foolish message. We have a, a foolish people. And now we have this kind of foolish ministry here, the proclamation of the cross. Look at chapter 2. It says, And when I came to you, brothers... I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So he's like, when I came to you, I didn't use lofty speech or wisdom. I wasn't trying to be impressive. If you remember last week, we talked about uh, how the Greek philosophers would have these rules for persuasion. And, and if you had these three things, the logos, ethos, and pathos, if you put all those together, then you could probably persuade anyone of anything. Logos being logic, reason, your content, and your ethos being ethics, your credibility, um, and then a pathos being your how they thought about you and your presentation. Were you charismatic? Were you convincing? So we have these three things. You put them together, and you can persuade people. And he's saying, I didn't come using those tricks here. Paul intentionally didn't use any of it. Notice it. His logos, the message, the content, the... They saw it as illogical, unreasonable. It was foolishness to them. So eh, on the logos, ethos, his credibility, they questioned his credibility. If you go read in 1 Corinthians 9-2, there were many who were questioning his apostleship because he wasn't a part of the original 12. So he didn't have the credibility with them. And then, and then three, the pathos. Well, he wasn't a charismatic speaker either. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, it talks about how people saw him as unimpressive when he speaks. That he's not really that persuasive. He's not charismatic. He's kind of hard to listen to. I don't quite get it. See, see, and that makes it even more amazing that God saved so many people through Paul's ministry when he intentionally chose not to use any of the tricks of the world to persuade people. He just preached the gospel. Look at verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I'm just going to give you the gospel. Clearly, boldly, but I'm not going to try to manipulate you, he says. In 2 Corinthians 4, 2 through 3, he, he speaks on this where he says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by an open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Like, look, I didn't use any of these tricks. I didn't use, try to manipulate you. I just gave you the gospel. Verse 3 of chapter 2. And I was with you in weakness and much fear and trembling. He suffered much in, this, uh, in his ministry. Verse 4. 
and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and in power. So he's like, so I didn't come with plausible words of wisdom, but in spirit and power. When we see spirit and power, we think miracles. Oh, he came to them doing miracles so that they would believe what he said. But remember, we got to remember, in this context, power, power here is not talking about miracles. Power is talking about the power of God to save. To give someone eternal life, to transform their life. And so... When he talks about power, he's talking about salvation. And he says that even without the best, most polished presentation, people are still getting saved. Why did God choose to do ministry this way? Verse verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of God, but in the power of men. Your faith might not rest in the wisdom of God, but in the power of men. Essentially, he's saying... That what you win them with is what you win them to. What you draw people with is what you draw people to. And so we see examples of this and uh, maybe celebrity preachers. And you have people who get so attached to a celebrity preacher because they're so gifted and so wise. And I, I put my whole identity in following this celebrity preacher, whoever they are. But then you know what happens when the celebrity preacher has a failure? You know what happens? My faith fails. I can't accept that that would happen. How could that? Because you put it all, what you draw them with. If you're drawing them with celebrity, that's what you're drawing them to, and it'll fail you. Or you have those who, they've had an an emotional, powerful experience in in worship, and then what happens is they, they begin to chase the anointing. And so they are looking all over the country and, and even in the world. Where is God? Where are the outpourings? Where are the revivals? And then I, I'm not connected in a local church in any faithful way. I'm going to go travel to this church because there's an outpouring. And I'm going to go there and have this wonderful, emotional, visceral experience. And that kind of ceases and dwindles. So I'm going to go to another outpouring. And, and, and they chase the anointing. They're glory chasers everywhere they go looking for their next high. But what happens when your Christian life becomes boring? Because that's most of the Christian life. Slow faithfulness. Slow obedience in the same direction. Every time you open your Bible, it's not like the heavens open. It's like, ah! A lot of times it's like, I'm just going to read out of obedience today in faith that as I store it in my heart, God will use it somehow for my spiritual health. Sometimes it's just that. But what happens when the emotions die down? You know what? I lose my faith. That's why we don't seek to draw people to church with prize giveaways. Let's, 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 Let's lure them in and then hit them with the gospel. So let's say we're going to give away this thing and everybody let's draw a crowd because you can draw a crowd by giving stuff away. So let's, let's draw a crowd, let's get them all in here and then we'll boom, hit them with the gospel. But here's the thing, what you draw people with is what you draw them to and whenever the prizes cease, so do the crowds. Are you teaching people that they come to church to get something? That I, go, that I go to the Christian events for me so I can benefit some materially way? Is that how we do these things? 
Or maybe you have big extravagant productions. If we do this big thing and we, you know, we come out and we, you know, have this big, the greatest showman presentation at church this Easter. What does that song, how does that song go? You probably shouldn't sing it in church. But some churches do. And they, you put on this big presentation and let's draw people in. And let's have, they're they're going to be drawn by our excellence in production. And then when they're drawn with it, what happens whenever the, the production ceases? What happens in their day-to-day life whenever life isn't a production? What happens whenever they're in a rural town where there is no big production? If someone can be persuaded into the kingdom by human wisdom, they can be persuaded out of the kingdom by human wisdom. So just give them the gospel. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't dress it up. Don't apologize for it. Just proclaim it. Where does your faith rest? In human wisdom? Or in the wisdom and power of God? See, the beautiful good news of the gospel is that God is perfect and he created us to live in his world and we're accountable to him, but we have all sinned against a holy God and rightfully deserving of death. But God, being rich in mercy, he came and he died in our place for our sin on the cross and he rose from the dead proving that he's God who else do you know who's risen from the dead? He's not, we don't worship a dead God. We worship an alive God, a living God. And he rose from the grave to offer you eternal life. You could also have resurrection life. And the way we get this is not through earning it or paying off our sin or doing enough. The way we get this is through faith. And that's foolishness to the world but it's the power of God to all who believe. And so will you believe it today? Father in heaven, I pray for um, God, everyone in this room who is perishing, or that's how you describe describe their state. And, And so I just pray that you would grab a hold of them by your Spirit's work in their heart, convicting them of sin, that they would recognize that They are sinners as we all are. That you would bring them low because it is those who are low that you call into your family. Father, I pray that they would see their need for salvation. That God, you would open their eyes to see the beauty and the wisdom of the gospel. And that the power of the gospel would grab a hold of their life and that you would just yank out their heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. That you would breathe life into dry bones. God, that you would give resurrection power to those who believe on you. So God, cause us to repent and turn from our sin and embrace Christ for the forgiveness of our sin as Lord of our life, as Savior of our souls. I pray that some would make that step today. Place their faith and trust in you, Jesus, for your glory. In Jesus' name.
And Lord, I also pray for those of us who believe that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, but that we would believe it and proclaim it without apology, without apology in its clearest form with boldness. Pray these things in Jesus' name. And the church said,